This evening I'd like to talk about one of the more enduring riddles of the spiritual life. And that is the contradiction that seems to exist between there being goals to strive for and there also being essentially nowhere to go and no goals to reach. The paradox that we face in this exploration between making changes and bringing about transformations and yet essentially there really being nothing to transform and nothing to attain. The contradiction that seems to exist between the encouragement to to pay attention, to deepen, to make movements within ourselves and yet the constant statement that there's nowhere to go apart from where we are, apart from what is already with us. Now, we all meet these paradoxes in our own exploration. We all find ourselves pondering over these riddles at different times and also at times feeling confused by them because we seem to hear what feels like very contradictory messages. Now, I think it is probably clear to us that in meditation something is asked of us uh, more than just parking our bodies on a cushion. That actually engaging in this exploration. It seems to involve at times a certain amount of doing, of movement. We speak about using skillful effort and about the possibility of bringing about changes. We speak endlessly in this exploration about possibilities the possibilities that lie within us, the possibilities of of clarity and compassion and awareness and insight. And I think it is quite difficult not to think of these possibilities as goals that can be reached, things that can be achieved. It seems that if they are not present in our experience right now, then it seems logical to assume that we can develop them and nurture them and make them accessible and real to us through the efforts that we make, through the time that we give to being attentive to the practice that we do. It's very rarely suggested in meditation that we should just kind of hang out and um, wait for sort of magical moments or that we should just hang out and enjoy or not enjoy as it may be the storms of our consciousness. Instead, that in the suggestion is made, we make it quite a lot, that it is very worthwhile bringing the light of attention to each moment that we're in. 
Now clearly this involves a certain choice within us, a certain direction that we follow, and it involves a certain effort. And the effort clearly is to effect certain transformations within the storm, the confusion, the confusion and the restlessness that we experience. Now, at the same time, we are equally cautioned again and again not to strive, not to struggle, not to strive for anything, not to compare, not to try and measure any single city or any single experience against any other experience. We're encouraged to, to open, to live in accord and in harmony just with what is. We talk about the non-achievement of awareness and insight and compassion. That everything that we need to see, everything that it is significant for us to understand is with us already. That everything our hearts and our minds yearn for can only be found within this present moment. And that we really need to look no further than this mind, this body, this heart, this moment to find the fulfillment of wisdom and compassion. It is, we suggest, the possibility that we are already free and that any ideas we have that we are not free are simply delusions and kind of veils within the consciousness. Now, we are, of course, not the only generation of yogis to encounter these seeming contradictions. The, in the Buddhist scriptures, you can find endless sutras which are totally encouraging and exhorting people to make heroic efforts in meditation, to practice without interruption, to practice with intensity. In the Satipatthana Sutra, which is the basic, uh, the Sutra of the Buddha from which this style of meditation evolved, it is said that if you were to practice mindfulness for seven months, or seven weeks, or even just seven days without interruption, that you would discover complete unexcelled enlightenment. You might start counting how many days. We have left. We also hear the stories of great yogis who engage in really arduous and at times really ascetic practices, really pushing themselves to the edge, you know, all kinds of asceticisms and renunciations and hardships. And most of those stories have happy endings, the ones that we read. Most of them end up with the enlightened yogi who made it. Now, amidst all of this kind of encouragement that we read in the Buddhist sutras, we also cannot ignore one of the most profound statements that the Buddha made, that I gained absolutely nothing from complete, unexcelled and perfect enlightenment. And this is also, I think, a statement designed, basically, to stop most achievers and attainers dead in the stride, you know. Attained nothing. 
I think these riddles and these seeming paradoxes can lead us at times into a certain amount of confusion. At times we're not sure, should we be trying or not trying? Should we be applying effort or should we be sitting in receptivity? Should we be really aspiring towards certain changes or should we just be in and wait for things to unfold? We look for answers and there doesn't really seem to be any right answer. For every authority that encourages us to great effort, there will be another authority who tells us that that effort is essentially in vain. It's that wonderful, um, the story of Hui Ning, who was um, a Chinese peasant who went to a monastery. And, uh, and it's a very long story, I'll cut it <laughs> Anyway, after many years, he finally got to meditate. And the abbot was coming to the end of his life, and he wanted to find an, a, dharma, a dharma heir, someone who would succeed him as abbot. So he asked all the monks, I don't think there were any nuns there, uh, he asked all the monks if they would write a poem on the wall of the monastery to illustrate their understanding. So one monk, who was the most senior monk and the most diligent in his practice and the model for most of the monks, wrote upon the wall of the monastery, uh, the body is a Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright. Carefully reshine them hour by hour and let no dust alight. Now, this was of course considered to be really a wonderful piece of revelation by half of the monks who thought, well, this is exactly what we should be doing in our meditation, carefully, carefully attending every moment and not letting impurities alight, not letting dust alight. And then Hui Neng was was, went ahead and wrote his verse upon the wall. And he wrote, There is no Bodhi tree, nor is there... Um, there is no Bodhi tree, nor is there mirror bright. Buddha nature shines clear and pure, so where can dust alight? And the other half of the monks thought that this was a wonderful piece of wisdom indeed. Now... I think that we often try and solve these paradoxes and these contradictions within our own practice, and at times we find problems with it. I think the primary problem that is found is in the area, basically, of views and opinions. Because views and opinions or positions or standpoints will always flavor and condition our own journey and our own exploration. And I just like to look at the two extremes of these positions because I think probably many of us have bounced around in them and still do. Now, one extreme of these views is to believe that any breakthrough in the spiritual life is totally linked to and totally dependent upon the effort that I make. The changes that I personally am able to bring about through the effort and the attention and the time that I put in. Now, this very personal view of breakthroughs and, and achievement really tends, us, tends to lead us to set up all kinds of goals and ideas and expectations and shoulds about our meditation. 
Now, I think we've probably all experienced this. I should be experiencing a certain kind of meditation. I should be calm. I should be loving. I should be open. I should be compassionate. I should be understanding things. Um, when we have shoulds, we also tend to have, of course, a lot of comparison that this sitting is better or worse than a previous sitting and looks better or worse than somebody else's sitting, that I am better or worse than I used to be and in the future I will be hopefully better than I am now. It also tends to lead to quite a lot of judgment uh, about what we experience. Now sometimes when there is of course this view that it's all up to me, a certain intensity is brought into the meditation. We at times enter into a retreat or enter into a sitting feeling, I've got to make something happen here. I really need to make something happen. Either I've got to get rid of a mind state or an experience that I label as being an obstruction or unacceptable or unspiritual in order that I can reach a mind state or an experience which is um, acceptable and spiritual that will somehow signal to me a certain amount of depth or attainment. Now the subplot to this approach is that the belief that time has got something to do with this transformation. That the more time I put in, the more successful I'm going to be. Because the more practice I do, then the better my practice is going to be. The other part of the subplot is the belief in personal responsibility, that it's all up to me whether I have any breakthroughs or any depth in this exploration at all. And so when there are feelings or judgments of failure, those moments are very much felt to be my failures. Equally, when there are feelings or judgments about successes, then they are equally felt to be my successes. They have happened to me, <clears throat> and they have come about through my, my effort, and my work, and my understanding. Now, this, this approach really does tend to create the belief the liberation is dependent upon making myself perfect. This is, this is quite a commonly held belief in meditation, that I'm going to be rewarded by liberation because I have perfected myself on a personal level. So then we have endless dualistic standards that are set up inwardly by which we measure the state of our perfection. And then, of course, progress can only be measured by improvement. If this becomes, if this is seen as the goal, personal perfection, you know, to be a shining sunbeam of spiritual enlightenment, then progress can actually only be measured by improvement. Now, this is made manifest, I think, in the experience of meditation by a few thoughts that come up. You know, if you find yourself or consider yourself to be a very angry person and you happen to have, you know, 
uh, two or three hours would go by without an angry thought. He says, I'm really doing very well. Yeah, I'm really doing very well. That hasn't arisen today. So we really think ourselves, of course, to be a very greedy person, and we managed to renounce our second plate of lunch two days in a row. I think, look, really getting somewhere here. You know, if we think that we're a very restless person, we might sit without moving for an hour. We think, aha, finally, a breakthrough is coming. Now, we can take these thoughts incredibly seriously. Incredibly seriously. So, if we've had, you know, an hour or two of calm, and then suddenly the negativity is there again, it's tragic. It's felt to be a major type of catastrophe. Oh no, you know. Here is again, I thought I got over that. I thought I was through that. And now here it is again. And so then all this tension comes. And this search for improvement. And it is mostly interesting that in the search for improvement, you can really tell if you're on it. Because one goal is always replaced by another one. That's the way you can tell if you're on the path of improvement, when one goal is always replaced by another one. And this is a pretty common experience in meditation. You know that, you know, the mission for a few days or for a week or for a retreat may be greed and then there's a feeling, well, I've got through that one and then the next mission is is anger, and then after the anger's gone, there's another project, you know, and this project is defensiveness, and after the defensiveness, another project begins, and now I've got to do this. This is essentially the path of improvement. Now, sometimes I do believe that in our more expansive moments, we really wonder whether it really matters very much. I mean, really, if we had three negative thoughts yesterday and only one today, in a more cosmic view of things, one would really not take this to be a major catastrophe. One might see thought as thought. You know, a feeling is a feeling. It's not quite a signal of disaster. I think in those more expansive moments, we feel a certain relief if somebody says to us, you know, you are not the mind. Oh, thank goodness. I'm not the mind. And there's a little something I'd like to read to you. Your true nature is not lost in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It was never born and can never die. It shines through the whole universe, feeling emptiness, one with emptiness. It is without time or space and has no passions, actions, ignorance, or knowledge. In it there are no things, no people, and no Buddha. It contains not the smallest hairbreadth of anything that exists objectively. It depends on nothing and is attached to nothing. It is all-pervading, radiant beauty, absolute reality, self-existent and uncreated. How then can you doubt that the Buddha has no mouth to speak with and nothing to teach, or that the truth is learned without learning, for who is there to learn? It is a jewel beyond all price, your true nature. This is a wonderful relieving 
statements when we've been caught up in the kind of processes of our mind and our judgment. Now, that is one side of the view, that is one extreme of the opinion that is often held in the face of paradox. It's all up to me. It's my responsibility. Uh, I am the creator of the experience of my meditation. Now, needless to say, the other extreme, the other view is no less extreme and no more helpful. Now, there is a certain attractiveness in really uh, subscribing to the statements that there is nowhere to go and nothing to attain, that all effort is useless and will only lead to frustration. It can be very wonderfully relieving to hear the words that we are already free and that there is nothing that we need to do. Because, of course, this relieves us of the need to do anything. This is quite a relief. And sometimes practice of meditation, then, in that view, is even held with a certain amount of disdain or contempt. Now, although these statements are essentially true, that there is nowhere to go and nothing to attain, the bottom line of these statements is that if we are not awake inwardly to our own essential freedom, if we are not awake, then we end up our lives living not with choiceless awareness, but essentially choicelessly being conditioned and governed by our habits, our reactions, our likes and our dislikes. It is knowing the words of freedom, but not the spirit. It is very easy to dismiss conditioning and habits as being empty, but if we are still governed by them, they are very powerful emptiness. And there's a Zen story. A young student of Zen visited one master after another and finally called upon a very famous master named Dokuan. Desiring to show Dokuan his attainment and how well, how enlightened he was, he said to Dokuan, The mind, Buddha, and sentient beings, after all, do not exist. The true nature of phenomena is emptiness. There is no realization, no deliverance, no sage, no mediocrity. There is no giving and nothing to be received. Doquan, who was quietly smoking his pipe, said nothing. And suddenly he whacked the student over the head with his bamboo pipe. This made the youth quite angry. If nothing exists, inquired Doquan, where did the anger come from? There's a wonderful sutra of Buddha that says, to be free from all views is peace. To have no view of self is the highest happiness. To be free from all views is to be very free indeed. Now, we always uh, often speak about meditation in the same sentence as path. When we speak about path, we are actually speaking about the possibilities of bringing transformation. Now the path offers us what we do, the doing that we do in meditation. Actually, what it offers to us are glimpses of our own possibilities that are then conceptualized or conceptualized in the teaching into words. We speak 
about love, about compassion, about awareness, about freedom, about awakening. And this path actually has a direction, a direction of honoring and valuing these qualities and these possibilities. And I think it is these possibilities that our hearts respond to in meditation. Most of us don't follow this kind of exploration with the intention of staying the same or with the intention of becoming more intimately acquainted with what we already know, more intimately acquainted with our chaotic mind or our self-images. The path in itself is always twofold. It is always about letting go and fulfillment, about opening and understanding. We see directly and experientially that as we let go of resistance, there's a great opening into receiving. We experience very directly that letting go of anger often means that we are opening into love and intimacy. The letting go of fear allows that we are opening into the wisdom of uncertainty. The letting go of our preoccupations with self allows us to see very directly the harmony and the, the beauty of interconnectedness and oneness. Now in this path, or in this exploration, we use a certain practice. We talk about the practice of meditation, the form. Now the form is used not in any way to make us all experts at form. That is not why we use form. Rather, the form is a vehicle of intimacy, bringing us more close, more connected with ourselves and with this moment. Now, when we use this form, we can say without embarrassment that it helps and facilitates the bringing about of certain changes. If we look back to the first day on a retreat, of this retreat, you know, where we found it hard to stay awake on a cushion, where we found it hard to stay present just one moment, one complete moment, where we felt distant, we can look back and we can say, aha, well through using this form, there's obviously a possibility of deepening and connectedness of deepening in intimacy, we may experience through using that form greater sense of spaciousness. We may find it ease, a greater ease in letting go, a greater ease in allowing things to be. Now those changes, those changes that come about, they are, ex they are the realm and the territory of the form. We may have many insights which are powerful and transforming through the vehicle of the form. And they're not to be dismissed because those insights and those changes actually empower us. They lead us to trust more deeply in our own possibilities. They, they empower us to enable us really to see the emptiness of our old belief system our self-images, which somehow don't fit anymore. 
We don't feel so easily able to define ourselves in ways that we have done in the past. But that doesn't mean that we should seize hold of any of those changes or of any of those insights or of any of those transformations. It would be actually a great error to believe that those changes and those insights are signaling to us that we are yet one step closer to liberation. Because the moment that we seize on those insights as being a kind of signal, then of course the expectation comes that we will continue in some sort of linear fashion in this way until we arrive at enlightenment. It is easy to forget the many, they're all experiences, all experiences have beginnings and they have endings. And that many of the changes that we experience through using the form are actually supported by the factor of the form. That those changes are supported by motivation, by silence, by effort, and all things that are conditioned are subject to passing away. So any single thing we gain, or feel we have gained, we can also lose. It is also easy to fall into the trap of looking upon experiences as personal possessions, and then expecting to maintain them or to repeat them, I'm sure I'll fall in this. You know, yesterday I was calm, yesterday I was peaceful. How can I get it back again? How can I make it happen again? Now this is not in any way either to deny the value of those experiences. They are extraordinarily valuable. They are necessary. They are really so deeply important. Those experiences or the openings that happen in meditation actually on a level which is often not conscious to us allow us to kind of shed identities, shed beliefs, shed self-images, shed, like a snake that sheds a skin that's too small for it, or like a butterfly that, that sheds a cocoon. Many of the experiences and the openings that happen in meditation really encourage us to shed very limited ideas and beliefs about who we are because we have experiences that show them to be false. And this is the whole significance and the value of experience. They help to show us what is false and to trust a little bit more deeply about what may be true. If you have one moment of profound calmness, it's really hard to believe anymore in any kind of image that you may have held of yourself as being a very agitated, restless person. If you have one moment just of deep openness, it's really hard to kind of then go from that and say, well, you know, really, I'm very defensive and, and limited. You know, that wasn't me. You know, that, you know, that was accidental. To have one moment of, of real sensitivity it's hard to believe in the, in the truth of, of distance and separation. So the experiences that are really rooted in the consistency we bring, the effort we make, the application, 
they support certain insights which are not necessarily so transient. Experiences are transient, unpredictable, unreliable. But actually insight is not, understanding is not so transient. It is very hard to go from understanding back to ignorance. Now, it is though still possible to make some mistakes within that realm of experience. One mistake that is easily made is the desire to hold on to the openings, the desire to hold on to the insights, the desire to form a new belief system about who we are, which feels a lot more flattering and more pleasant than the one we had before. As easily the mind, the self arises and wants to take hold of this and construct a new identity. And of course, the moment that we do that, we create another rather solid sense of I am, which is the source of duality and separation. It is important to be clear about the benefits and the limitations of experience and of form. Because that allows us also to be clear about the paradoxes of movement and transformation and of nothing to attain or achieve. Basically, our experiences are showing us or offering to us a glimmer of the freedom that comes with letting go. And then some people say, well, I should also then let go of the desire for freedom. And this is true, but not not too soon is one that is worth sustaining a little. Calmness, that experience of calmness shows us the freedom that is born of letting go of our mind storms. Do we want to go back to the storms then? No, we don't. That letting go means we can say, I've had enough. I'm no longer interested. I'm no longer satisfied. To be lost within any image or any way of seeing or any identity which is limited and which is less than that which is possible for us. Serenity really shows us the freedom that is born of letting go of clinging. Why would we want them to grasp any more if we see so clearly that it brings pain? Spaciousness really shows us the freedom that is born of letting go of dwelling. What are the lessons we learn from that? We don't wish to dwell anymore. And it's not that we practice these things. They are born of insight. Real letting go is born of a real, a deep inner certainty and conviction that these are the realities and the worlds and the experiences which are limited, which are no longer interested in inhabiting. And the level of that disinterest in inhabiting that which is limited and restricted needs to be so profound before we're really willing to let them go. And many of the experiences that are born of meditation and of practice show us and and perhaps encourage us really to reflect on the importance of that disinterest of not living any longer in the habit of limitation. 
When we're not interested in doing that anymore, then we don't do it anymore. That may seem very simplistic, but in some ways it's just so true. When we're not interested anymore in living in the habit of limitation, the habits of dwelling, the habits of clinging, the habits of grasping, then we cease to do it anymore. It takes us a little time sometimes to learn those lessons. The point of meditation practice is really just to show us those possibilities. That is why we pay attention, that's why we make effort. Because we trust in those possibilities and we make that trust visible and tangible to the connectedness that we bring to this moment. But there is a point too when actually the traveler on this path has done really what it needs to be, what needs to be done where there is no point in looking for more experiences and more opening because we really do understand what is true and we really do understand what is false. And then it's not a question of getting better and better at understanding what is true and what is false, but allowing that to deeply penetrate within our consciousness. There is a, a verse of the Buddha that says, Mere suffering exists, but no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. The path is, but no traveler upon it is seen. And nirvana is, but not the person who enters it. To me, the, the paradoxes end within that verse. There is a way of being present where we are not identifying even with being present. There's a way of seeing the unfoldment of our own being with all of its difficulties and problems without ever investing those difficulties and problems with the belief that I am and then I need to become. There's a way of allowing that unfoldment to happen without investing it with need for improvement, which is so much of a product of our beliefs, allowing it just to be. There's a way of doing in this practice where we use effort, where we apply attention without any expectancy, without any agenda, without any demands from it. That is simply just a love of being attentive simply just a love of being awake. That there's no interest anymore in being confused or dull or agitated. Well, we do without any investment in results. It's a way of traveling this path without measuring ourselves constantly about whether we're getting better or worse, whether we're getting nearer or farther away, whether we're getting holier or less holy. A way of traveling this path without any kind of thought of linear progression, but just for, out of a sense of dedication to being awake, to being present with what is. There's a way, too, of, of cultivating all of this, of nurturing the seeds of our own possibilities without ever believing that I will become 
more enlightened, that I will become more perfect and then be liberated. Where there's really a cessation of the belief in I itself. And then there's no need to enter anything or to leave anywhere. There's a great, a great art in learning how to rest with such gentleness and such serenity within our path. Learning even really how to get out of the way. And sometimes I would describe meditation as a lesson in how to get out of the way of our own unfoldment. Not interfering with our agendas, not interfering with our ideas, but learning just simply to be awake. And then when we are awake, truly, there's nowhere else we want to be. There's no satisfaction in being anywhere else. There's no joy in being anywhere else. But the joy is found simply in that presence, in that seeing, in that awareness. There are really no riddles to solve because everything that is found within those riddles is both true and is false. The riddles ask us to question, to look at our approach, to look at the way we are in our being present. They're not contradictions, they are paradoxes. They hold within them truth in both both areas of the paradox. Our challenge is not, of course, to come up with solutions and certainly not to formulate some kind of view, but to see clearly, to see clearly what is already here with us. May all beings live with happiness. May all beings be free from grasping. May all beings abide in awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.